This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. I'd like to make one more announcement. The last two Sundays we have talked on the theme from uh, Esther 3, and then we had Mark Prater speak uh, last week. And through both of those, uh, a guest preacher, through both those messages we, we have uh, dealt with the theme of injustice, the theme of racism, the theme of prejudice uh, towards different ethnicities, and, and actually beyond ethnicities, prejudice can go to all kinds of things. But we talked about prejudice, or racism, and that sort of thing. So I'm not preaching on that today. It's a live topic in our culture, but we're continuing that conversation. And we're going to do so by uh, next Sunday night, we're going to host something uh, right here on a Sunday night that's going to be called A Conversation About Race. Some people prefer the term ethnicity, but the culture uses the word race, so I'm not going to explain it. I'm just going to use that term. Uh, how the gospel abolishes prejudice. So it'll be next Sunday night, right here, and uh, the last two weeks in a row, one of the sermon applications has been find someone uh, from a different uh, ethnicity than yours, have them in your house, Um, and uh, given all the strife in our culture right now, two weeks ago we talked particularly um, about the experience, or I I called the church to listen particularly uh, for the experience of African Americans in our culture. Uh, what, what, is, um, what is the black experience in our culture? And so I said, if you are not um, black, find an African-American friend, ask questions, listen, that sort of thing. So we're going to do that right here, and I'm just going to basically interview uh, two friends of mine who are right here, Chauncey and uh, Takia Allman. Uh, yes, okay, that's good. Uh, they're here on the second row. They're African-American, and uh, I'm going to invite... Uh, well, I, I mean, I didn't mean to state the obvious because everybody can't see you. <laughs> well, that was awkward um, on my part, not theirs. But uh, so, so that's a sign of what the evening's going to be like, I think. Uh, but basically, uh, I've talked to Chauncey multiple times about this, this topic, uh, Takiya less. But Chauncey I've talked to multiple times. So I just said, Chauncey, what about the conversations we have over coffee, the conversations we over, have over burgers? What if... We just had that conversation in front of the whole church. Why not? So that's what we're going to do. We're going to have a conversation like among friends that we normally do that will take a feel a little bit of my interviewing them. I mean, they're free to ask me questions. But I, I want to primarily make this an evening about listening. And so uh, I think it will serve everybody regardless of your ethnicity. Um, but uh, I, I want it to be an evening to listen and to learn because that's a positive step. There's no child care available, but this is suitable for children. I mean, we're not going to be talking about anything. Uh, actually, if I had children uh, that were school age, I would love them to hear this, uh, even elementary age. I think this would be really helpful. Um, so at any rate, uh, it will be recorded, so if only one parent can make it because you've got little kids, you can't bring them, whatever, we understand. So, but we would like to invite you and invite you to bring your friends as well. It's short notice, but we just wanted to keep the conversation while it's live. We didn't want to do it this fall or something. Uh, and I have some teaching planned later in the year on this as well. So there you go. Conversation about race next Sunday. Have you ever had a, uh, a moment in your life where you say, this is a defining moment in my life? Most of us have had defining moments of some sort. I remember a defining moment in my life. I can't remember the year but I can remember the exact location. It was, it was somewhere between probably 97, probably 1997-ish around there. 
And uh, I was at a real low. I've shared this before in the church, but I was at a real low. We had planted a church uh, in San Diego. Um, my wife and I planted that church with our kids and one single lady, so we didn't really have a church planting team, and it was really slow going. And uh, a couple years into it, it had been a ton of work, so I was physically exhausted. We had depleted our resources, so the grant we had been given from Sovereign Grace Churches to plant a church, we had used that up, uh, and I was emotionally, spiritually, physically drained. And here's why I remember the conversation, because I was in a Taco Bell in, uh, which is memorable to begin with, uh, I was in a Taco Bell in Tucson, Arizona, and the bank sign outside said 113 degrees. And uh, I don't know how low you can get in life, but if you're depressed and you're in Tucson, Arizona, and it's 113 degrees, and you're at a Taco Bell, you just want to go to heaven at that point. It's, <laughs> it's pretty bad. I mean, Taco Bell on a good day, I'm just saying, Lord, come, uh, please. But uh, so anyway, I was with a friend, uh, Paul, and I was pouring out my heart saying, I just don't know if I have faith to continue in this church planning venture. I was just ready to throw in the towel because it had been so difficult, so trying uh, over there. I mean, there's plenty of good things, but th- there was just a, t- a particular season that was difficult. And I remember him just encouraging me in the Lord, telling me about the faithfulness of God, encouraging me in things that were happening that I wasn't seeing, encouraging me in how much the Lord had already done And his words were like life to me in that moment. And I just left that that restaurant with a fresh faith and never looked back. And we turned the corner not too long after that, got some serious traction. And that that things really stabilized and and became healthy uh, and strong and fruitful and by the grace of God. But it was a defining moment where I was like, man, I don't know if I can go on. And someone coming alongside and saying, yes, you can. And the Lord meeting me with faith, yes. And that changed the trajectory of my life. Had we thrown in the towel or something, I wouldn't be here with you today. And uh, so I just look and go, man, the Lord was so faithful, so good. The chapter we're reading today is about a defining moment. And it's a defining moment in the life of Queen Esther. Esther is the queen to King Ahasuerus. Uh, he, is the per- he rules over the Persian Empire, which is the largest empire in the world in the 480s B.C. 480s B.C., largest empire in the world. They run from, uh, Eth- from Ethiopia to India, uh, and he is married to Esther. Esther is a Jew, as is her cousin Mordecai, but the king doesn't know this. So he's married to a woman who's Jewish, but she has hidden her Jewishness because of her cousin who raised her, because he told her to. She has hidden it. Now what has happened is the, a man has been raised up. He's second in command in the whole empire. His name's Haman. And because he's mad at Mordecai, what he does is he, he gets an edict passed to slaughter all the Jews in the entire empire. It's genocide. It's going to happen in 11 months. And Esther's a Jew. The king doesn't know it. Uh, Mordecai, her cousin, is Jewish. And so the whole town is thrown into upheaval, the whole town of Susa, because of this impending destruction that's to happen about 11 months after the decree. So let me pray, and then we're going to read this text and see what happens next. Lord, we thank you for grace. We thank you for your kindness to us to open our eyes and speak to us. And we pray that through the scripture, you would speak to us clearly and direct us forthrightly from this passage. Reveal your providential rule and your goodness to us today. And show us Jesus, our Savior, afresh. In Jesus' name, amen.
Okay, so with that background, let's read Esther 4. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, meaning the Jews were going to be killed, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai and learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish." Mordecai then went and did everything as Esther had ordered him. So this is a defining moment for Esther, and it's really a turning point in the whole book. We see at the beginning of the chapter, Mordecai has learned what has happened, and he is in mourning. He has the typical signs of mourning in verse 1. He has torn clothes. He has sackcloth on. He put ashes probably on his head. This was a way of showing grief and mourning in the ancient Near East. So even the Persians would have understood this, not just the Hebrews. They would have understood what was going on. He is out in the city, and it says that he is crying out loud. He's publicly grieving for the destruction of his people, the impending destruction of the Jews. And it says that all the Jews as well, that they are lamenting, verse 3, that they are fasting, weeping, and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes as well. So all of the Jews throughout the empire are grieving. Well, what happens is uh, Esther is in the 
palace with the king, and she doesn't know what's going on with Mordecai. So uh, some of her attendants and, uh, who kind of take care of her as queen, they know Mordecai, and they see him out there. He's grieving. He's in sackcloth ashes. He's crying out loud. And so they tell Mordecai, I mean, they tell Esther. So Esther, what does she do? She sends a change of clothes. Verse 4, she sent garments to clothes Mordecai so that he would take off the sackcloth, but he wouldn't accept them. See, he worked in the king's gate, which wasn't just like the king's gate was a place where they conducted legal matters and business. So he, he worked in the kind of, we might say, offices at the front of the king's gate that adjoined to the palace, but you couldn't come in in sackcloth and ashes, so he hadn't been going in, uh, and she thought maybe give him some clothes, he can come in. He doesn't put on the clothes. He stays out there, and so then what she does is she sends uh, one of her uh, eunuchs that takes care of her. her. His name is Hathak, and he goes out there and to see what is going on. It says, verse 6, Hathak went to Mordecai in the open square in front of the king's gate. So he's out in the middle of every one morning, as are the other Jews, And Mordecai tells him what happens. He says, look, go and tell Esther this is what happened. Haman has made an edict. We're all going to be slaughtered in about 11 months. He even knows how much money was involved. Haman bribed, you know, offered money for the treasury for this. So he explains that. says, go and tell Esther and uh, let her know uh, about this. He gives him a decree, the actual decree, and he says, tell Esther what's going on. Show her this decree so that she, as the queen, can beg the king for our safety. So here's her response. So this is all through intermediary. She responds and says, whoa, do you know what you are asking? Mordecai, is this a good idea? Because here's the Persian law. No one can go to the king with a request uh, or talk to him, even see him, without being invited. And if you do, the penalty is death. Uh, The the, uh, historian Herodotus Uh, who provides non-biblical history, he said that there were seven sort of uh, inside cabinet kind of member guys. Uh, Seven people had access to the king. But besides them, no one could come before the king without being invited. And so she says, if I go before the king, I will die unless he holds the scepter out to you, which is like, okay, you get to live and approach me. So this is a very, very risky thing. And then she says this, besides verse... um, this would be verse 11. She says, I've not been called to come to the king these 30 days. What's she saying? I haven't even seen the king in 30 days. Now, they've been married about five years at this time. If you remember from chapter 2, the king has a vast um, array of concubines, women he sleeps with that were brought from the city. The most beautiful women in the country were brought to the city. And so he has access to these ladies at will. And so she hasn't even been brought in 30 days. What's being implied here is that, look, he's not sleeping alone, uh, and I have no romantic leverage with him. It's not like I'm with him. It's not like, you know, I'm just kind of hanging out with him, uh, staying the night with him, uh, that I could just sort of casually over breakfast when things are going well bring up, hey, did, can I ask you about a matter? It, you know, these, the Jews that are being killed, by the way, I am one. Uh, he, I can't do that. I don't see him. So if I'm going to see him, it's going to be an unusual thing. I'm going to have to show up. This is a huge risk. This is not a wise plan. So Mordecai responds to her very strongly. He basically says, it may be risky to talk, but it's just as risky to m- remain silent. Verse 13, don't think that, it, that in the king's palace you will escape any more than the other Jews. Now, we've made the point that in this book, God is never mentioned. He's hardly hinted at. But in these following verses, 
we get a picture of God. This reads like an entirely secular work. Uh, there's nothing in it that references anything um, remotely about obeying God or um, naming God or the worship of God in the temple, nothing like that. Um, but here we sort of see there's something about God and how God is at work invisibly behind the scenes because he says in verse 14, if you keep silent, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place. This is a hint at God. Deli- to be delivered means someone's acting, someone's doing the deliverance. So he's saying there will, we will get deliverance somewhere else. There is an invisible hand. There is a power. There is the providence of God who will take care of his people. We don't know how. He might raise up another leader to knock off the king. He might raise up another country to over, uh, you know, overpower Persia. We don't know. But there will be deliverance. God will protect his people. And then he says, but if that happens, if you remain silent, God's going to deliver all his people. However, you and your father's house will perish. Now, there's all kinds of ideas. Some people say it's a threat. Some people think he's saying, look, I'll out you. We're going to be saved, but I'm going to out you to the king that you've been deceiving him. I don't buy that. That seems a little strong to me that he's trying to manipulate through threat. But probably what he's saying is, you know, you're not going to make it. If you disobey the Lord at this time, if you don't stand up, for the Lord and his people at this time, then what's happening is judgment will come to you in your house. I'm I'm assuming that's what he's saying. I don't think he's threatening to personally harm her or out her. I think he's saying, look, God will rescue his people from somewhere else, but it's not going to go well for you if you don't follow the Lord when you have an opportunity. So he tells her that. And then thirdly, he raises up the question of providence. This is the best known verse in the book, and this is where you really see the hint of God at work. He says in verse 14, and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. He says, you know what? It could be that God orchestrated all these circumstances that you had favor with the king, that the king chose you, that you married the king for this very moment. It could be that God has placed you in this position of influence to save his people at this very moment. The invisible hand of God has worked everything out circumstantially so that you can act and save your people. Now Esther's response is very different. She's no longer saying, well, what about this? And I can't go before him, and it's been 30 days since he's even invited me into the, you know, his quarters or whatever. Uh, she doesn't talk like that. Now she has resolved. She's met a crisis, a crisis of her identity, and she's now going to respond in a very powerful way. She, she springs into action Uh, previously Mordecai has been telling her what to do. Now she's telling Mordecai what to do. As a matter of fact, verse 17 says, uh, Mordecai went away and did everything Esther ordered him. So the roles are changed. She has gotten faith. And here's what she says uh, in verse uh, 15. I'm sorry, 16. Mordecai, get all the Jews together to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And it's a radical fast. Do not eat or drink for three days. No liquid for three days. And that that is an insane fast. So all the people have everyone fast. Why are they fasting? Well, fasting is a sign of, uh, it could be a sign of grief um, and mourning, but it's also a sign of need. Lord, we need you. And hunger and thirst reminds the person in a fast of their need. Now, it's interesting 
Almost everywhere in the Bible where there's fasting, there's mention of prayer. It's almost like the author is working hard to keep God explicitly out of the picture. I'm not not even going to mention prayer here. Probably they prayed. I would assume they're praying and fasting uh, with it. But it doesn't even say it. Sometimes in Esther, when it would be easier to acknowledge God, the author doesn't. Because the author has the agenda of showing us that even when you can't see God at work, he is at work for the good of his people, which is a wonderful truth. So that's what she says. Then she says after that, listen to her resolve. Um, Gather everyone to to, uh, fast. Verse 16, I and my young women will fast also as you do. And then she says this, then I will go to the king though it is against the law. So I'm going to take this bold step of faith, and if I perish, I perish. Now, why does he say, if God wants me to succeed, I will succeed? Because the chances, humanly speaking, are not good at all. That's why she says, if I perish, I perish. She's assuming that's what's going to happen. If I could take a very serious moment of Scripture and use a college football analogy... Here's what she is saying. There's a famed saying from Woody Hayes, who used to coach Ohio State in defending his running game. And he said, when you pass the football, only three things can happen, and two of them are bad. That's what he said. What did he mean? For those who don't understand football, um, he said, you can pass a football, you can complete the pass, that's good. You can throw an incomplete pass, that's bad. You can throw an interception, that's really bad, and that's why we run the football. Only three things can happen, and two of them are bad. With Esther going to see the king, primarily and broadly speaking, only three things can happen, and two of them are bad. One is the king could intervene, that would be good. Another thing is the king could kill her for breaking the law, that would be terrible. Or the king could do nothing, and now that she's a Jew, and is outed, she'll be killed in 11 months with everyone else. So he could be passive, and she dies. He could be active and say, you broke the law, she dies. Or he could intervene. And that's why she says, if I perish, I perish, because the chances, humanly speaking, aren't that good. She faces a crisis. She takes a step of faith, and here's the spoiler alert if you haven't read the whole book. What's going to happen is God is going to use her step of faith to rescue the Jews from destruction. Let me make a couple of points of application to our lives from a text like this. Here's the first one. To compare her crisis and to think about our own, your crisis may be your defining moment. We want to run from crisis. We want to run from trouble. We want, to, we want to get problem and burden and difficulty out of our life as quickly as possible. We don't want really challenging circumstances to come to us. But the reality is, in the Christian life, it is the crises that are our defining moments that set the trajectories for our lives. It's a truth that plays out in her life and throughout Scripture. Brian Gregory, in his commentary on Esther, said, Esther has been transformed in the crucible of crisis. And I want to say that's true for you and that's true for me. We are transformed so often through crisis. She, she, her crisis is her identity crisis. She has hidden her identity. Chapter 2, Mordecai tells her twice, do not tell the king you're, you're a Hebrew. 
So she hides her identity. And at the time, it seemed innocent, but now it's very costly. This is always the case with concealing our faith. Whenever we conceal our faith, it may be easy at the time, but it's only going to be harder and worse and more difficult down the road to reveal our faith. And, and so that's the crisis for her. It's a crisis of her own doing. Um, it's, it's choices she made under the influence of Mordecai. So they're both responsible. But she is now faced with a crisis in her life. There's only one character in the book that has two names, and it's Esther. She has embedded herself. She is hidden in the world, so far hidden in the world that she doesn't even know what's going on with the Jews out in the culture. She has, somebody has to see Mordecai. She's so distant from the covenant people of God and so embedded in the palace at this point, so separated, uh, that, that she has lived passively as Esther and become the queen in a pagan nation. But now she's going to need to live actively as Hadassah, her other name, her Jewish name, which we get in chapter 2. Now she's going to need to take action. And so the reality is that all of us have times in our lives. Maybe you can relate to a time right now where you're in crisis, and the decisions you make, they're going to set a trajectory for your life. You're not in a life-or-death crisis, okay? We're not in a crisis like she is. I mean, you could be, but most of us are not in a life-or-death crisis, Let me ask you this. Are you in some circumstance in your life where it's costly to identify with Jesus? You're a believer, but it's costly to obey him. There is some risk to you to act righteously. Not life-risking risk, but risk nonetheless. And I think the question of chapter 4 calls us to ask is, if it's costly to identify with Christ, am I taking that step of faith. It might risk your job. It might risk your reputation. It might risk your relationship. In one of the commentaries we have out there in the Resource Center, uh, it's helpful. He, he gives a number of real, uh, Gregory's the author's name, he gives a number of uh, situations, which I thought I could just sort of tick these off, but I like the way he writes about them. He makes application from Esther's example. He says, people of faith frequently find themselves in similar situation even if the stakes are not as high. How they respond often reveals much about their faith and what kind of character they have. A girl is mistreated at school, and a Christian classmate finds herself in a defining moment. Will she retreat in self-protective silence and slink away, or will she identify with her classmate and come to her aid? The first is the easier route. It saves her own neck while letting the other person take the abuse. The second option is riskier. She may come to the aid of the mistreated classmate, but she risks her own reputation to do it. Suppose that something unethical is taking place in the company. Customers, shareholders, or employees are being cheated in the process. A Christian employee finds himself in a defining moment. Will he retreat in self-protective silence and look the other way? Or will he stand up and speak for those who are being unknowingly victimized? The first protects his self-interest while letting others continue to pay the price for it. The second is much riskier. Blowing the whistle or confronting the wrongdoers may very well mean the loss of employment, reputation, and income. Even then, his chances of success, like Esther's chances, are low. His efforts may not benefit the victims in the end, but it is still the right thing to do. Suppose a Christian finds herself in a situation where she can benefit financially in some way. The problem is that she will have to compromise her integrity. 
Maybe it means filing her taxes in a way that is less than honest. Maybe there's a business opportunity that bends the rules. Maybe there's a chance to do some creative accounting that, strictly speaking, is not entirely legal. Or perhaps she stumbles into a chance to play an insurance company for her own advantage. She, too, is in a defining moment. She can compromise for her own benefit, while other policyholders, taxpayers, or citizens assume the cost for it, or she can do the right thing at a personal financial cost. Suppose due to a careless mistake, an organization faces unfortunate or unintended ramifications. The leader faces a defining moment. Will he throw those beneath him under the bus, letting them take the fall while he saves his own skin, or will he stand up and take responsibility for what has happened, even if it means great personal cost to his own career? The first option is expedient, but the second is responsible. Esther is in that kind of defining moment. She's at a fork in the road. Either she can try to save her own neck while her people perish, or she can risk her own life hoping to save theirs. Many of us at various times in our lives faces these various kinds of crises, and how we respond reveals how we really believe. When life's going great, for me to say, God is sovereign, for me to say, God is working all things for my good and for his glory as well, That's easy to say when life's going well. But when it's a challenge and when the pressure's on and when the decision faces me to do something bold and right, to identify with Christ and his word and to act in righteousness, when those moments in life come, that's the real test of do I believe God is sovereign. The question of is God is sovereign, that's really not a hard test when life's great. But when the challenge is there, when the, when the diagnosis is cancer, when I may lose my job, when the relationship is challenged and for me to step out and do the right thing could cause the relationship to end, when those moments are happening, that's when I'm tested to believe I believe God is sovereign. That's when I'm tested to think, do I really think God's good? Do I really think he is trustworthy? Is he sovereign and good? The crisis in our life reveal what we really believe about that. For some of us here today, you may be identifying as a believer in Jesus Christ and realizing that that is going to be costly. To identify with Jesus in your extended family is going to be costly because they don't believe and they question you. To identify with Jesus by the way you act or a decision you make or a challenge you need to make in the workplace is risky with your boss, risky with your coworkers. To take a stand for Christ with your friends at school, to say no, as the illustration was, to defend someone that's, that's uh, being marginalized, to defend them because Christ defends the weak and the abused. To do that in identity with Christ may cost you reputation, may cost you social cred with your friends at school. To be open about your faith with a potential girlfriend or boyfriend, or a girlfriend or boyfriend that you're in an early relationship with. Sometimes when I'm preparing, I feel like the Lord put something strongly on my heart out of left field. And this is one. I, I just felt there may be somebody here that's about to start a relationship with someone and you have not been frank about your faith. 
or you've already taken some steps into the relationship and you have not been honest about your allegiance to Christ, your desire to live for him, and what that means with the direction of your life, what that means with your moral life. And I think the Lord would want to bring a warning to you that to fail to do so now, the consequences will be so far greater down the road. And that the fear of adjusting that relationship or even losing it, it seems costly now, but you have no idea the cost that will be down the road. She started with a minor thing. Just don't tell them you're a Jew. She didn't know she'd become queen and now have to risk her life to go to the king. It she could have lost her life before, but she may have just been kicked out of the contest. We don't know what would happen earlier, but it would, wouldn't have been as severe as this test. Taking, being recognized with Christ. Uh, maybe it's your neighbors. Maybe it's, I don't know, family, work, whatever. But stepping out of the shadows and confirming your trust in Christ can be risky. For some, identifying with Christ for the first time. There may be somebody here that you're saying, you know what, I haven't really believed yet, or maybe I'm even believing, but I haven't publicly said that I believe. You're investigating faith. You're, you're spiritual, and you're curious. Maybe you've been coming here for a little while and listening in. Maybe this is your first Sunday. But you're investigating. You're checking things out. And for you, the reality is that if I believe and say I believe, what does that mean for my life? That is a huge risk. And you know what the risk to you could be? It could be getting baptized. That's the moment where you're going to say, not if I perish, I perish, because we're going to bring you back up out of the water. But I didn't say, you're not going to die in the baptistry. But that's the moment where you could be saying, this could cost me my family relationships. This could cost me some friendships. This could cost me some questions. This, why are you going to the church? You're getting baptized. Why? Are you going to be like holier, you know, holier than thou now? It's costly. So for some people, it's not identifying with your faith down the road. It's saying, I am a believer. It's saying, I'm turning and trusting in Christ, and I'm going to say it out loud. Because once you come up out of that water, we're baptizing over here, I believe next week. We're going to do a couple weeks. Uh, but when you come up out of that water, you're raised to walk in newness of life. It's a testimony. I'm with Jesus, and I'm with his people. And you never go back on that without accountability. Your crisis could be the defining moment in your life that sets the trajectory for years to come. And so the Lord sobers us by that. Number two, Jesus' crisis strengthens us in all our defining moments. See, there, there is a crisis in the Bible that's much greater than Esther's, and that's Jesus. Jesus hit a fork in the road as well. His fork in the road was the night that he was about to be arrested, about to be tried, about to be crucified. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, this is what he prays. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. What he's praying is the cup represented the judgment of God, the wrath of God. He's saying, Lord, if there's any other way besides me dying on the cross to bring salvation, that, that, I would prefer that, obviously, but not my will, your will be done. He didn't say, if I perish, I perish, like there's a two out of three chance or a, an 80 out of 100. I don't know what the odds are. He, he 100% entrusting himself to the Lord would endure 
the cross, taking our sins upon himself, receiving eternal judgment for us. And in the fork in the road, he said, not my will, but yours. And that makes all the difference. Because he died, because he rose, because he poured out his spirit, now if we believe, we're in union with Jesus. We're unified with Christ, and he forgives our sins. And so here's the good news. Every time I've been in Esther's position at much lower cost, uh, not life or death, but every time I've been in a decision to conceal my faith, to not follow the Lord, to do what's easy and expedient for my benefit that may cost others, to, to protect myself from losing face because I don't want to be thought of badly by admitting that I'm a follower of Jesus or acknowledging that. For every time I've done that, Jesus died for every one of those sins. Every time I denied him, his death covers those denials. First John says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. That is really good news to people who frequently can be cowardly, selfish, do what's best for me, and not care about others. We all have experienced that. And the good news is Jesus knew that, and that's why he went to the cross. And so when he got to the fork in the road and he said, not my will but yours, you are forgiven for those failures, and so am I in Jesus. But here's the other good news. His death, burial, and resurrection gives us power and boldness to obey him. So the Bible says, united in him, Romans 6, we're buried with Christ in baptism. We're raised to walk in newness of life. Jesus dies for our sins. He is buried. He is raised. He pours out his spirit so that we live a new life, so that we can say, Lord, if I perish, I perish. I can't believe I'm saying that. The only way I can say that is by the power of God enabling me to say that. Lord, I cannot believe I'm being bold in this situation. I cannot believe that I'm going to step out and say something that's going to change the environment of the room. The staff meeting all of a sudden changed radically by my comment. And I'm not talking about some kind of self-righteous kind of comment. I'm talking about humbly saying, I believe this is right. I'm a Christian and this is what I do. This is what, we, you know, whatever the situation is. It's acknowledging Christ with gentleness and respect no matter what the cost. And he gives us the power to do that. Whatever crisis, not just crisis of identifying with Jesus, but crisis in health, crisis of finances, crisis in our family, a job crisis, an emotional crisis, depression, anxiety, fear, even despair, like the despairing of life itself, that kind of crisis, Jesus died and rose to sustain us and empower us in those times. He is with us in a way that Esther didn't know because we live this side of the cross and resurrection, and so the very Spirit of God is in us because of Jesus. We're united to Christ and he gives us strength. And that's why communing with Christ in prayer and in scripture daily is so important. It's not just a discipline, it's life. That's where we receive the strength to walk out the difficulties of our days, which often are filled with landmines. That's where we receive the power. That's where we receive the encouragement. That's where we receive the confidence. That's where we know, I know he's sovereign. I know he's good because I'm, I'm living in that truth. I'm living in that truth from his word. So it's his facing the crisis that strengthens us to face all the little crises that we face. And really daily, there are many defining moments. Now Esther's gonna change the trajectory of redemptive history, fairly significant decision she's making. She's gonna change everything by a single decision. But most of us get where we are 
by a thousand many defining moments. A thousand many defining moments that happen all day long, every day. And it's these defining moments that set a trajectory for us. And that's why we must be dependent. She says, everybody fast. I need God. And we need God as well. I just want to close with this. We've been talking about the crises and the many crises, the defining moments and the many defining moments that we all face. I just want to talk about this one verse, which is the best known in the book, and we're done. And I want to ask you this question. Esther had a for such a time as this. And I want to ask you, what is your for such a time as this? Verse 14, who knows whether you have not come into the kingdom for such a time as this? And I want to ask you, who knows what God wants to do through you right here and right now? That's the for such a time as this. Where you are, in the relationships you are, in the context you are, the such a time as this. What does God want to do for such a time as this in your life? Not where are you going to be. We spend a lot of time, where am I going to be? No, not where are you going to be, not down the road, not one day when you get married, not one day when you get the right job, the real job, not one day when you move to that city or when I get involved in that ministry. Right now, what does God want to do in you and through you where you are? Listen to me. This whole book is about the providence of God. It's about the invisible hand of God orchestrating situations to sustain his people. And he has put her in this situation. So Mordecai's question is not about Esther. It's about God. I'm not asking you a horizontal question. I'm asking you a vertical question. And this point that I'm going to make in just a couple minutes changes everything in life. And if we miss this from the book, we wasted our summer. When you begin to look at your life directed providentially by God, it will change the way you relate to your circumstances and to your decisions. Who knows that God hasn't arranged things because he wants to use you now? And so this is a transferable truth because it's about God who is providential and not in the first place us and what we're going to do. It's about God who orchestrates. So let me ask you this. Who knows that you don't live in the apartment or the house that you live in right now for such a time as this? You didn't randomly show up there. You didn't just pick your address. You didn't pick your neighbors. That's orchestrated by God. And so who knows what the Lord wants to do at this time with these neighbors. Not the future house. Not the future neighbors. Not the better place. Not the nicer neighbors. Not the more. No, right now. Who knows that you don't work where you do with the people you do for such a time as this? It may, in the course of your career, be a temporary job, but in the course of your calling in God, it is not temporary. It is what God wants to do in you and through you right now. And so if you're thinking about the other job that's coming or the better one you had instead of where has God placed me? Who's in the cubicle next to me? Who's on the job site next to me? Who's the client on the other end of the phone with me right now? Who knows that God hasn't linked you with those relationships for something he wants to do in their life right now? Who knew that the guy in the cubicle next to you would be going through a divorce and desperately lonely and needing a friend when you showed up there? Who knew that? 
God did. And God orchestrated that. Who's knows, who knew that God uh, gave you the friends that you have, the gifts you have, the talents you have, the influence you have, the abilities you have for such a time as this? Who knows that you aren't in this school at this time for such a time as this? We didn't just receive some people to add to our database, to plug in where we need some ministry help today. Glad we got some more members. No, these are people who joined their life with the people of Grace Church because they objectively agreed with the doctrine and the practice and the mission and because they subjectively felt that the Holy Spirit was leading them to this church. Who knows that they didn't join this church in this season for such a time as this? It's not just getting some new members, it's getting the members God designed for this family, for our mission at this time, at a very strategic time in the life of the church. Who knows that they're not here for something very specific that the Lord has in mind. Listen, a healthy view of providence inspires vision for action here and now, not someday, somewhere. Here and now, because I look around and I take stock and say, God gave me that neighbor. God gave me this job. God gave me that friend. God, once I decided to get in there, you looked around, but God directed me to this community group. God called me to this children's ministry. God called our family. Who knew for such a time as this, my kid would play on this soccer team with these families? Who knew who I would meet in that context to represent Christ? That will change everything. The doctrine of providence will change everything of how you view your life. And that's what he's saying. Hey, Esther, look, who knows? Maybe we made some mistakes in the past, but who knew that God's even redeeming those and putting you right here, right now, to save the whole people of God? A fairly significant action. God orchestrates the invisible hand of God directs for his purposes. And that changes how we look at the people next door. What are their needs? What's God done in their life? What would the Lord use us to help them know Jesus or grow in Christ? How could we serve? How could we relate? How could we live with permanence, even if it is a temporary season? How could we live with permanent. So maybe you're in a huge crisis now and the Lord is saying he's going to change the trajectory of your life. Or maybe you've made bad decisions. He's going to redeem that by his grace. But maybe you're not in a huge crisis right now and you don't feel like you're in this huge defining moment, but you've got little bitty defining moments all around you. Look at your life and say, how would it be different if God placed me here right now for his purposes with these people? How would my purpose be different. What would I do differently if I heard God put me here in these friendships, these jobs, these relationships, these hobbies for such a time as this? What would Grace Church look like if we said, this isn't a hard one to think about, he dropped us in the town square in these days with this opportunity, these relational connections that are opening for us as a people, what, who knows that for such a time as this, God wanted to bring hope and healing and life to people that aren't even in this room. That changes my attitude about being a part of this church and what God wants to do. Let's pray that he'll fulfill his purposes through all of us. Let's pray.
God, we, we're humbled when we think that you rule the planets, solar systems, the stars. You created everything with a word of your mouth, that you are glorious and mighty, and yet you have counted the hairs of our head. You've numbered them. You care about the small details. There are no accidents in our lives. And so we just thank you for that and rejoice in that reality today. And Lord, we pray that you would give us faith to honor you, to follow you, to exalt you, to trust you, to make the decisions you're calling us to make because you uh, rule and reign and that you are working so that all of us can say, who knows what you're doing for such a time as this. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.